Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. I'm Michael Scott, and this is The Drummer's Pathway podcast. Throughout our lives, we strive to improve upon a set of skills that we want to embrace in order to fulfill a creative vision. There are many scenarios where we can achieve these goals through our own self-studies and experiences, but the majority of the things that we accomplish are often the results of an outside influence. We all seek guidance at different stages of our development and often need to seek out someone who has gained the experience and wisdom that we seek and is willing to mentor us. I would define a mentor as someone who has the wisdom and experience that they are willing to share with someone who is truly invested in learning their craft. A mentor will not only share their knowledge, but also challenge and empower you to step out of your comfort zone and stay with you as you develop your talents and achieve your goals. In this episode, my guest is award-winning recording engineer and producer, Amy King. Originally hailing from Newfoundland, for over 20 years, Amy was the engineer at the legendary Grant Avenue Studio in Hamilton, Ontario, where her talents and expertise as a recording engineer, classically trained pianist, and multi-instrumentalist has allowed her to not only inspire and influence artists of all levels and genres, but also gained her the respect of the industry, therefore allowing her the opportunity to work with many emerging and established artists, including the legendary Gordon Lightfoot. In our interview, we talk about how often the respect of our peers and collaborators is more essential than seeking the spotlight, the value of being open to listening and showing compassion towards others who are working through their own creative processes, and why maintaining a positive attitude and commitment to being professional and prepared is essential to establish and maintain a professional career in this industry. Let's get started. You have established a reputation in this industry as a producer, an engineer, a highly in-demand multi-instrumentalist, and also have gained an exceptional life experience by being the main engineer at the legendary Grant Avenue studio in Hamilton for over the last 20 years. There's a lot of experience and a lot of stories in that. But if you look back to the beginning in terms of your original start, because you're originally from Newfoundland, where did music first come into your life? Oh, boy. Um, I think like a lot of people, I know that you're generally interviewing mostly people that are musicians for a living. And I, I would hazard a guess that a lot of them would probably answer that question the same way that I will, um, in that a lot of it came from church exposure. So, um, I started going to church with my parents because that's what you did where I lived as a kid. And, and, uh, so it was a very evangelical background. So I, I got to know all of the old traditional hymns. Um, and I don't want to go into the quality of musicianship in that particular experience, but it did get a lot better as the years went on. Um, and I wasn't allowed to listen to any music outside of that because it would, it would be considered against scripture or secular, or I'm going to hell if I listen to anything other than gospel music. So that was my world for a very long time. Um, until I started my dad actually snuck me Elvis Presley's greatest hits on cassette and the Aladdin soundtrack, which, you know, scandalous, right? I, I wasn't allowed to have these things. So it was more like, it was like, don't tell your mother kind of thing. Um, and on drives, he would listen to a lot of Gordon Lightfoot, Burton Cummings, you know, uh, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash and that kind of thing. So he'd let me listen to it. But then I started to listen to Saturday morning American Top 40 and Casey's Top 40. And I would take all of my old gospel cassettes and put scotch tape over the bottom of them and put them in my little ghetto blaster and record over that music. I would record Casey's Top 40 and American Top 40. So I was getting exposed to whatever was 
you know, popular at that time. So, I mean, we're talking about like Michael Jackson, salt and Peppa, Mariah Carey, like, you know, that kind of, you know, mainstream music, but what that did was it really kind of opened up my eyes to, um, to the outside world um, musically. And then I started to sneak to Walmart because it was the only option at the time. Actually, it was called Woolco before Walmart even bought. There was no record stores in my hometown and I would buy albums. So the first one of the first records I bought myself was uh, Silver Chairs Frog Stomp. I don't know if you know that record at all. I do. Um, yeah. So albums like that, and then graduated into like the '90s grunge scene a lot more, and bought some Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Rage Against the Machine, Pearl Jam. I wasn't allowed to have any of this stuff, so I was hiding it. Um, and that's when I started to really read as well. Like I don't mean read music; I was already taking piano lessons, but reading the credits, and and um, I really missed that. And that's when I started to look at words like recorded by or produced by or engineered by and and then you know the session player names i'm thinking wait a second i know the names of the guys in this band well who are these other dudes that are playing on this album and how does this whole thing work and of course we're talking late 80s early 90s so i didn't have the internet to go and google and and research and find out how records were made and lord knows i wasn't allowed to go to the library and look it up because that was where rock and roll happened was in recording sessions and recording studios. So I wasn't allowed to find out any information. So the church, the church music was my first start. And then the, the rules that the church put on me kind of forced me to rebel to, uh, to learn more about the secular world of music. And I remember I befriended a young woman um, whose father worked at the, the local newspaper and and my hometown, it's really strange, my hometown started an annual festival called the Salmon Festival. And they would get acts like the first one had the Beach Boys and like highly regarded. I think the Eagles did a couple there. And, and it makes no sense for a small town Newfoundland. But I think the whole theory was that we put it in the middle of the island where I'm from and everybody from the island would come to the show, which is great theory. And it actually worked for quite some time. Um, anyway, this this young woman that became a friend of mine, her father worked for the newspaper, so got tickets to Bon Jovi. And my parents didn't know who Bon Jovi was. I think I probably told them he was like the newest, you know, Christian rock band or something. So they allowed me to go. Um, and it was the Rainbow Butt Monkeys who became Finger Eleven opening for out of Burlington, out of Burlington, opening for the Tea Party who was opening for Bon Jovi. The Tea Party had just put out their first record, The Edges of Twilight, which is outstanding album. So I remember I'm going to the show and I remember, you'll like this, the sound check when they hit the kick drum and my pant leg moved. I was like, I was hanging on for dear life. I'm like, okay, this needs to be my life. I knew at that moment I needed to be not on the stage. I didn't want to be on the stage. I knew I wanted to be behind the scenes where where all of the sounds take place where where your source material becomes tangible and and uh i realize i've completely veered off your question michael um <laughs> but anyway that was my first like live music experience outside of the church was having that realization at a very young age like i want my pants legs to move every day so anyway i don't know if that answers your question or not yeah, that was great. It's funny because I, I think one of the things that you and I both have similar is that we both have a passion for creating music and for being involved in a number of different projects, but neither of us have a passion for being the face no. of the oh, project. Gosh, no. for, for me, I've always gravitated towards the studio musician. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, get joy out of being part of the experience mm -hmm. i get very little joy out of being the face of the experience mm -hmm. i would i would rather play in in a in a backup band for a show that's completely anonymous that's where i get my joy because i know that i'm part of something that's enriching people's mm -hmm. lives but i don't want the attention 
put on me. So I've always gravitated myself, not to the rock stars, yeah. um, not to leading that type of life. It was always the, Hey, who's this name on this yeah. record? Um, I don't know who they are, but they're on 17 of the albums that I bought, but I don't know what they look yeah. like. Let me appreciate that. I would rather be part of the experience mm -hmm. and let someone else take that glory because it's extremely out of my comfort yeah. zone. And you and I have always been similar along that ways. We want to be a significant part, but we want other people to take the credit. What we want is creative satisfaction mm -hmm. and respect from our peers for our commitment to our Absolutely. craft. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it for sure. One of the things that you have done because you've been the main engineer at this, you know, world renowned studio for so long, your job is to work with hundreds of different artists in all different types of genres, different levels of experience. You have artists that'll come in that are terrified, that are very green, have never done these things. And then you have the seasoned artists and they're all a completely different dynamic and a completely different experience. So I, I kind of would like to just get your perspective and you don't have to get into specific artists, but I would kind of like your perspective in terms of how you would approach a situation when someone new comes in, that this is their first experience and they're overwhelmed. What would you do to make them feel comfortable and to help them turn this into a positive experience? And the flip side of that is, you have someone that comes in who's a music veteran, who's had lots of experience, knows what they want, knows what they're doing. How do you adjust to handle those situations? So for me, I had this conversation with um, somebody earlier this week because I'm in the process of doing some training right now with, uh, with a fellow engineer. And um, I said, because he asked me sort of the same general question, and I said that no matter what the session is, whether it's somebody's first and they're recording, you know, some spoken word poetry or uh, fart noises, or it, it could literally be anything. Um, and in the scheme of things, it may never get heard by anybody except for them and maybe their close family, or it could get heard in the case of some of the artists we work with by hundreds of thousands of people. Um, whatever that is, I treat that particular session like it's the most important thing I've ever had in my entire life at that moment. Um, whether we're talking about like Gordon Lightfoot or someone who just came in off the street that has a couple tunes they want to record. So I think for me, we'll get into a little bit more of the personal um, policy that I have in terms of, of giving somebody a comfortable experience. It I'm also very blessed with the fact that I get to do my job in this particular space. So one of the things when the, the guys were building the studio in, in 76 or prior to it, when they were looking at different spaces, they I think the choice came down to three particular places. This, this building here, um, somewhere in West Hamilton, as far as I know, or maybe close to Dundas, more of like an open concept corporate looking commercial-ish business uh, building and another one in Brantford, um, relatively the same kind of feel as, as, a, as a business, as a commercial space. So I'm, I'm grateful that they chose this particular building. And uh, anybody who hasn't been here, I mean, to describe it, it's just an old Edwardian brick house, uh, 1913, I believe it was built. Um, you know, it's got crappy wallpaper. I call it load-bearing wallpaper. Um, <laughs> it's so, there's no reception area. There's no polished corporate commercial stagnant looking space. So you walk in the front door and you're basically in the studio. And our goal has always been to make it feel like someone is creating music in their own home because generally that's where most people are comfortable. So even guys that have done this a thousand times still get a little bit of nerves when they come in to record because, you know, you're workshopping ideas, you're wearing your heart on your sleeve. There's a lot of emotion involved. 
um, and a lot of vulnerability. And uh, if we can just create a space where it feels comfortable for them, then that's step one. So I'm already blessed with that. I don't have to create the environment, so to speak. You know, we don't have big giant lighting systems and and phones ringing off the hook. Like you've been here. It's, um, it's, it's musty sometimes, you know, it's just, it feels like your home. Uh, and, yeah. and that, that really goes a long way. So what I try to do for someone who's maybe never been here before is I always establish a relationship or a rapport prior to them coming in. Um, whether that means them coming to just have a look at the space, meeting me, uh, or having a phone conversation about what it is they want to achieve, a little bit of background info, how they got involved in music, what are the songs like, what's the instrumentation, um, so that when they show up, they don't have any surprises for me, because I like to be prepared going into a session, and they will have a little bit of a concept of what I'm about as well. Um, coming down to technical things, I, I'm adamant about knowing people's names, um, and once I meet them, uh, and they share information about their personal lives and their family and how they want their coffee. Uh, I tried my best to just make mental notes of that. So the next time they come in, I already know that they take two sugar and one cream or they like their coffee a little cooler, you know, just little tiny little details like that really go a long way. Um, again, because I'm training uh, a, a future engineer right now as well. I always say like, a person who walks into this space should know that it's theirs for the day. They don't want to walk in and see cigarette butts from the night before or remnants of last night's session. They want it. They want to show that we've put some planning and some foresight into their arrival. So I'll have a little bit of a workshop already set up for them if I know that they're bringing certain instrumentation so that I'm not you know, chasing my tail when they walk in and they're not paying precious studio time for me to figure out a setup. So it just, uh, it takes a little bit of that stress away as well. Um, and I think just my personality being an East coaster, uh, and a bit of an introvert, they can probably tell that I'm a little nervous as well, always. So, you know, when we share in some of that, uh, scaredness then i think that we we both we help alleviate each other uh, as well so um those are just some things that that i do with regards to the seasoned guys when it comes down to it they just want the same things they want to walk in and see that i've given some thought into setup um that things are where they they want them to be uh, a lot of people that have done this a lot of times are very afraid of change and i will use gord as an example he would come in and he would want, you know, the stool that he sat on to be the exact same stool every time and it to be in the exact same place every time. And that comes down to his personality. And you have to get to know someone's personality if you're going to be creating music with them, because it's all about the psychology, all the technical stuff and all these buttons that are here in front of me. You know, you could teach a monkey how to do that stuff. You can learn it from a book. Um but it's the psychology of, of dealing with the people. That's, that's the hard part. And that's uh, you need life experience for that. And you need to have, I think just some innate people skills to, to be able to uh, handle that kind of thing. So. When a lot of people go into the studio to do a project, whether it's their first time or their 50th time, they go in with an excitement and an enthusiasm and, and kind of a collective energy that really wants them to kind of just, get everything off the ground and get everything done. As soon as you go into the studio, you put the headphones <laughs> on and you're just about to hit record, you suddenly realize you're now under this giant microscope and things that you never paid attention to seem to be 10 times the size they were before. Yes. And you now hear every little noise that's a distraction. Suddenly the things that you had memorized and you've been doing for a long time, you suddenly can't remember the words and there's nerves that kick yeah. in. And when you're in a scenario where you feel like someone just wants to push a button and get your stuff done, then you, you lose confidence mm -hmm. and you don't perform to the level that you're capable mm -hmm. of there. Are, you always hear stories about, you know, people going in and they have engineers that rile you up so much to get you so angry at them that they get the performance that they're looking yeah. for. And that is an approach. Mm -hmm. But most people 
regardless if they're introverts or extroverts or beginning or experienced are sensitive mm -hmm. and they want someone to encourage them. They want someone to, to push them and not point out the faults mm -hmm. because in a lot of situations, when you go in and you make a mistake, everyone jumps to pointing out the mistakes. Mm -hmm. You don't need to point out a mistake. The person who's doing this is already very aware mm -hmm. of the mistake. What you need is someone to point out the successes mm -hmm. because it's those successes that are going to get them better on the next mm -hmm. take, build their confidence. The more you're critical, the further away you're going to get from getting the result. I, I've done sessions before. I remember doing one years ago and I got hired by this band. It was a two member band and they had programmed all the drums, but they decided to record their EP because they were going to take over the world and become like the next big band as you often will, you know, take that philosophy when you're in school. So they hired me based on a recommendation to record this. So we recorded, we, we rehearsed a couple of times in the bass player's bedroom at his mom's house and we got everything set. I remember we went into the studio that day and they said, we booked the studio for two days because we want to do eight songs and we want to complete them. Um, and we're going to record all the drums first and we're going to do everything else later <laughs> on. And, and I got, I think six songs completed in the four hours that, which they were happy about. And then at that point we're doing something that was a, a seven minute long progressive rock piece that halfway through had a, like a double bass pattern and it got really complicated. And at that point I was tired and I kind of said, we can stay here for another hour and I'll probably get through it or we can come back tomorrow and it'll be done in 10 yeah. minutes. And then, but they were just anxious to get to their parts. And so they were a little frustrated at first that it took, I think five hours for me to get through all of the drum tracks for these eight songs. Um, and then they needed to do all the guitars, all the bass and all the vocals for the rest of it, which ended up taking the entire next day, and the other five days of of time that they needed to book because at that point they didn't realize how long it actually takes yeah. to do this stuff and the bigger your vision the bigger the budget that yeah. you need because not everything is going to go right mm -hmm. away and so me being a session drummer i've always taken the the philosophy that i'm being hired to do the job that they want me to do as fast as possible and not just perform at a certain mm -hmm. level, but be enthusiastic, be encouraging. You know, if they do something really well, go out and be the first person to tell them that, which at times is completely against my personality mm -hmm. type, but I view that to be what I got hired to yeah. do. I'm not there to complain because I'm tired. I'm there. If, if I need to be there at 10 o'clock, I'm there at nine mm -hmm. o'clock at 10 o'clock. I want to be already set up so that I'm ready to go. I've learned the songs. If we need to do five takes and we're playing live off the floor, we need to redo them again because they need to redo their parts. That's not to say that I'm getting everything right the first time, but I've over the years, I've developed a skill set where I, I, I'm starting to understand what my role is in that position. And I remember once being at a workshop given by Kenny Aronoff, who's one of the top rock session drummers in the industry, who's played with everybody. And someone had asked them a question about, you know, what's the most important skill set to be like a, a, a first call session drummer? And he said, your job is to go into that situation, play everything as if it's going to be a number one hit and to make the artist think that the job that you did is because they are responsible yeah. for that. They won't give you credit for it. It's, it's about not taking responsibility for the role. Yeah. It's about giving all of the glory to the artist that hired you in the first place, because that's your job. When you go in and make it about you, you've lost the point of why you're there in the first place. It's not about you. It's about the artist. And, and he also said half the time, the artist has no idea what they're talking about, but they think they know what they're talking about, but you can't tell them yeah. that 
you have to make them believe that if something is a success, it's entirely because of them and has nothing to do with the rest of the team. And he said, if you can do that, that is your role. And I always kind of liked that philosophy because it's not about you. It's about the end result mm -hmm. and how the person that hired you views that situation. Um, I have a lot of experience doing this. There are other people with a lot more experience than I do, but my goal is that every job that I do, I want to be better than the last mm -hmm. one. And I'm very self-critical, but I think I do a good job when I'm hired for a lot of these sessions, but a lot of it isn't because I'm better than the other people. A lot of it is, I think, because I'm prepared mm -hmm. and I've got a good attitude. And I think uh, I know you have hired me on a couple of occasions or recommended me because of that, because you know that if you say I'm going to do something, I'm actually going to do what you say. And not everyone has that perspective or that skill mm -hmm. set. You know, they might be the best musicians, but they might not be the best musicians to hire for that particular scenario. And, and so I kind of wanted to just kind of ask you about, you know, when you look at the people that you would hire for stuff or that you've worked with, what do you consider to be the most important traits for someone to be called for studio work to kind of um, really kind of build a reputation for being a first call musician? Um, sort of like my job, the technical aspects. So hiring a session player for any instrument, they should be able to play. So, you know, prerequisite number one. Um, but that's kind of, I don't want to say that's not the most important, but it's, do they get it? And what I mean by that is, you know, um, do they get the intent of the song? Because like you just said, it's not about the players. It's about the artist and it's about the song. So if they can't do something that complements the song or supports the artist, then they're not going to get called back. And I've had the opportunity to record some pretty heavy hitters. And um, the other thing that I, I look at, and some people will disagree with me on this, is the person has to be a good hang. And nobody wants to be around a complainer or a clock watcher or an opinionated person. So we've got session players that we won't call back who try to produce. So they didn't get hired to come and produce the song. The artist is either self-producing, there's a hired producer, or we've been asked to do it. We don't want, or the artist doesn't really want an opinion. If you want to play something differently, you can find diplomatic and sneaky ways to go do it. Um, but we don't want somebody to stand on a soapbox and give their opinion on the piece of music. So I look at that. I look at, is the person a good hang, a good fit for the artist and a good fit for the song? And, and really they should be able to play anyway. So that shouldn't even be in the question. How important do you think it is as a session musician to be a strong reader? Well, it depends on the gig. Some artists or producers will show up with charts and expect you to play exactly what's written or some semblance thereof. So you have to be able to follow along. Um, most of the guys that I've had in here can read, maybe not notated drum music or notated music, but at least number system charts or or chord charts so that broken down into, into bars kind of thing. I think it's really important um, because it also translates into the live environment. If you get played to hired to play on a session, oftentimes you're going to get hired to play the CD release party and some other gigs as well. So it's really important to have that ability to, to read charts because chances are you're going to have to at some point or be asked to at some point. For me, my perspective in terms of reading drum music is that the more you understand that, the easier it is for you to hear things mm -hmm. and notate things and make charts that are going to just help you. You don't have to transcribe yeah. everything, yeah. but if I if someone gives me a, a demo and they've programmed a part, even if they say, do your own thing, the reality of that situation is that I know they really want to hear what they're already used yep. to hearing. They use they usually just want it to be played mm -hmm. better. And so I can go through and I will usually ask an artist, okay, are, are, am I playing exactly what you recorded? Because if they say yes, then I'm going to notate, I'm going to write everything mm -hmm. out because I don't 
that's what they asked me to do. Um, and other times I'm writing out the basic beat mm -hmm. and then just writing out the arrangement or writing out, you know, the different elements. So it, it for me, even if you're not reading in a session, it helps you communicate yeah. better in the session. If you, if, if you can kind of, you know, share, you know, share those arrangements, make those quick changes, quick adjustments. And it helps when you're all understanding, you know, you're, you're communicating the same sure. way. Yeah. And that's the other thing. So if you are hired to play on a session, oftentimes in this environment here in particular, there are other session players playing with you. So hired bass, hired guitar, hired keys. So if they all have charts and they look back at you and they say, Hey, Michael, on bar 68, can you do a goose egg on, on downbeat? You're yeah. going to have to at yeah. least know what that means or know where bar 68 yes. is, right? So just having a little bit of knowledge of the chart system or how it works or just the terminology goes a long way. And uh, in a session environment, you can't take time to teach somebody how to do that or what some of these terms mean. So This might sound like a funny question. But in the position that you're in as an uh, engineer and sometimes producer for different sessions, do you find more satisfaction from a creative standpoint in the sessions where someone comes in and they have a basic idea, but they don't know how to formulate it and they need someone to kind of help formulate their vision or the flip side of that, where someone comes in and they know exactly the plan and your plan is really just to recreate their plan, but they're not looking for that input because like, there are different challenges. Mm -hmm. But do you find a preference for one over the other? I, I really enjoy the I, I enjoy the work ethic. I, I spoke with someone about this last week when we were chatting about working with with Lightfoot because Lightfoot is the perfect example of somebody who has to the detail what he wants, what he wants it to sound like, tempos, uh, dynamic. Everything is written, either physically written, tangibly, or in his head. So our job is to just be a conduit for him, and I enjoy that because. There's not a whole lot of debate. There's not a whole lot of discussion. It's more, here's what I want to leave with at the end of the day. Now do that, which is great. I love the productivity in that. But on the flip side, when somebody comes in with, you know, a little phone and they say, here's the song idea, and they've got a verse and a chorus, I think, okay, this is great because really in the scheme of things, what I get to do every day for a living is I make nothing. I, I literally, like I make nothing. There's nothing that I can reach out and say, here, Michael, like, here is what I created today. There's no piece of steel. There's no piece of wood. There's no carving. There's no painting that you can reach out and touch. So when somebody brings me something that's basically like a skeleton or a bare bones idea and gives me the freedom to build it and to mold it and to put clay on it and, you know, basically paint a picture sonically. I love that because it gives me a feeling of satisfaction. Like I've actually made something. So it's still not physically tangible, but somebody now can hear this person's idea that exists only as cells in their brain and they can hear it and put it out there to the world. I love that. That is highly satisfying but it's also scary too because you're putting so much of yourself into someone else's work and and you try not to internalize it too much and there's times when they absolutely hate it and there's times when they love it so much they just want to you know play it for the masses so it's um you get both sides of it so i enjoy i enjoy both of those contrasting scenarios and everything else in between at the beginning, we talked about how you and I both kind of had a desire to be in the background, but to be part of the big picture. The flip side of that is that you're also a fairly prolific songwriter and artist on your own that's not really seeking to be a performing artist, but you have released some exceptional work over the last few years. For yourself, as an artist on your own, what's your creative process? Oh, gosh. Um... I think it changes a lot of the stuff that I had the opportunity to put out during COVID was just me basically kicking myself in the ass saying, you've got this stuff written. It's time to put it out there. And most of it I had already recorded sort of as experimentation when I first started working here and between like Oh two and Oh eight, I had some form of a lot of these tunes already recorded. And 
I feel like where they ended up was completely different versions, but it gave me like the skeleton idea back then. Um, I write mostly on guitar and it, I don't sit down with the intent of writing a song. It usually just sort of comes out or I get like a lyrical idea and then two weeks later, I'll get another lyrical idea that kind of fits with that one. And then I could say, hey, I got this chorus from 20 years ago that I think now it's fine. It's, it found its home and it belongs here. Um, actually, just before we took a call, I sat down at the piano, which I don't do as often as I should. And I started just playing some arpeggios in a key that I hate just for the sake of doing it. And out came a song. So I actually like I ran and grabbed a mic and I recorded it. And, and lyrics and everything, like start to finish, done. So it happens like that sometimes too. And other times it just takes weeks, months, years. So for me to even put that stuff out when I started, that was you know, 20 years of, of having the opportunity to record if I wanted. And I just never did because for the most part, I'm working on other people's music. And at the end of the day, I just want quiet. Um, but then when COVID hit, we weren't allowed to have people in the building. So it was like, oh, now I can. So my goal was just to do one song at a time until we were allowed to have people in again. And I don't know how many I ended up with. I think 13 or 14 out there, maybe yeah, yeah, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just different every time. Um, so I hope that that uh, the one that you played on that you going back to, you know, what you've talked about before is being the encouraging session player uh, to anybody who's listening to this. I get messages from you, Michael, on on like the weekly basis saying, hey, just so you know, that song I played on is really, really great. It'd be so awesome if you put it out there. And that that stuff goes a long way. So um, I just hope that uh, I'll do that one day. And I think what that also does is gives me insight into the pressures that other artists feel when they're on the other side of the glass. So I always try to approach my job as if, okay, if I was out there playing, what would I want to hear in the headphones? Or when I turn around to look in the control room, what would I want to see? I wouldn't want to see an engineer staring at a computer screen or having a conversation with somebody else. So I treat my job as if it was me out on the floor and what would I want? I got hired about three or four years ago to play on a record for a local artist and which was a really positive experience. And it's an album I'm particularly proud of. And I remember having a conversation with him afterwards. And he kind of said to me one point, if it wasn't for you and how happy you were to be part of this process and how much you loved and were moved by these songs, he goes, I'm not sure I would have actually released this record. Wow. Because as, a, as an artist, you always kind of go through this process as, I have a vision. I have something I want to say. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. And you go in and you start it and you're like, no one will ever yeah. hear this. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Um, and, and I just wasted all this money and then I have to go through and do this. And then at that point, something changes and then it, it doesn't go the way you intended, but it takes you in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And that really kind of helps kind of inspire you for a little bit and kind of keep the momentum going. Then you hit that other roadblock and you start questioning everything that you did yeah. and then at that point you're like well i've no one's heard this and so i don't need to put it out because no one's really waiting for this and i remember when he put it out even in the liner notes he had actually put a little comment in it about the fact that and he named me personally that if it wasn't for me that he wasn't sure that this album actually would have been released and then every few months i take it off the shelf i listen to it and i go there's some amazing stuff on this record and then i just send him a yeah. message because the problem a lot of times is that People will record something, they will release it to the world, and then they never know what happens. Yeah. Because yes, some albums are going to have 600,000 copies sold, and they're going to get played on radio. And most albums, independently, will be bought by family and mm -hmm. friends, half of which won't get listened to, but it doesn't diminish the quality of the work that they've done. Some of the best work out there, no one will ever Absolutely. hear. And, and, some, and some of the most questionable work is the stuff that has the biggest impact in terms of the industry. Yeah. And I know that's something, and we don't need to get into that. So, but I know that's a conversation that kind of you and I have had that it's, it's you can't judge quality based on kudos 
and numbers mm -hmm. because the industry is a business exactly. and there's going to be money behind certain artists to make sure that they're the huge success. And then the kid across the street that works his little job at McDonald's to save up his money to come in and record those two songs that he wrote for his girlfriend, yep. that may never get released, but that doesn't diminish the quality of that experience. Absolutely. And I've often found I'll see a singer songwriter sometimes in a scaled down acoustic guitar, raw with no band situation, and it's beautiful mm -hmm. and it just translates exceptionally well. And there's, there's a spirit and a soul behind that, that I find particularly inspiring. Then they get signed to a record and then the, and the record company will come in and they gloss up this yeah. record and they make it sound great and they make it sound radio ready. And it loses the magic that yeah. the other stuff kind of had in the first place doesn't diminish the quality, but it goes from art into commerce. Yeah. And that's something that sometimes I find as, as a listener, I kind of want to get back to the art of music rather than the commerce of the music. Music doesn't need to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Music just needs to inspire an emotion or a feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that you're really good at, and I know some of your little recording tricks, and they're your <laughs> recording tricks, so I'm not going to tell people what they are. But one of the things that you're really good at is capturing unexpected moments <laughs> when people are not suddenly under the gun in terms of trying to, you know, make sure that everything is perfect mm -hmm. because you're listening and you're paying attention and you get the spirit and and the nervous energy of these artists and you sort of cultivate that and you encourage that and you know how to get those performance that end up being magical that a lot of people aren't always aware that they're capable of and sometimes the the take that didn't go as expected ends up being the take that actually needed to happen in the first place yeah. There are a lot of studios that it's about everything is perfect. Everything has to be quantized mm -hmm. and, and they will replace and fix everything. And there's validity to that in many different contexts. But there's something beautiful about capturing that human spirit Absolutely. in terms of that stuff, because it's really how does it make you feel? Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that you do exceptionally well because you're listening for those moments. That's a, a huge compliment. Thank you. Um, like I maybe it's also because of the lack of tools that I have here. Um, I mean, you know that we are a very analog based workstation and I have done work in other studios, but I prefer this way because it's organic and it's human and it's not robotic. And, you know, I'm a sucker for a repetitive song that's played in time. Who isn't? Because it's, it's yeah. kind of mindless in a sense. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Um, I had a band, uh, you and I sort of chatted briefly about this through text. I had a band on, on Monday night and Tuesday night, and uh, it was absolutely outstanding. Um, we started with a click track, and halfway through, we it brought everybody in to just have a listen. And, and you know, they I could tell they were really, really beautifully tight band, seasoned musicians. Um, they've been playing together a long time, and... And I said, hey, guys, you know, like, let's just let's reference the click for the intro. And then once I hear that everybody's locked in, you're going to hear me fading it out. And I will bet you any money that when we listen to the beginning of the song after and the end of the song, you may sway off your BPM, but not as much as you think you're going to. So we did. We did the same song twice more with uh, just that. Just click to, to give the BPM reference. And it was outstanding the performance was like all of a sudden it was breathing you could tell that the moments that got quiet it it did slow down ever so slightly but it just shows that these are real people feeding off each other musically body language wise emotionally um the roller coaster effect was beautiful and they came back in to listen and they were like oh my god like we don't need we don't need a metronome. So not only do they not need a me metronome, I'm not going to sit there and line up every note of every bar to be dead on with each other, because what's the joy in that? You know, I think that the what translates to the listener, if people are capable of doing it and playing their instrument and delivering, what translates is that that heart and that intent and that raw emotion. And 
we tracked live vocals, um, which we could have used any of the takes of the live vocals. They were outstanding, but I thought, let's get, let's retract the vocals just a couple times. So we've got lots to comp or edit from if we need. So this woman, Rachel and the backing vocalist, Beverly, they went out and I kicked all the boys out. I'm like, guys, just go like, let's leave it, leave it to us just for an hour or so, just so we can have a little bit of a different dynamic. They went into this one song. I won't say the name of it just in case it never actually gets put out there for any reason. She got through it all the way through five and a half minute song. No place to come up for air whatsoever. She's dying from a cold. I have never heard a vocal delivery like this in my life. And she wept when she finished. I was bawling my eyes out. Her daughter was in here crying like a baby. We were like it. You could feel it in the air. Like I actually have cold shivers just telling you about it. Um, and I went out and and she just walked over to me and gave me a great big hug. And I was just said, like, who needs therapy when you've got this, you know? And I said, like, Rachel, the lyric that you've written, if you don't believe it, why would the listener believe it? And, and what you just sang for me just shows me that you believe every single word that you've written here and it comes out. And there's a couple places where her voice cracked and there's a couple places where it could have been a little bit over pitch but the delivery of that performance is something I will never forget for the rest of my life. And it's what made the mix too. We kept that entire take, no fixes. So it's, that's human. And that's what music is because exactly as you said, it's meant to evoke emotion and feel and to connect with people. And I'm sorry, but half the stuff that I hear on the radio these days does not connect to me. I don't know if it connects to anybody. Maybe it does. But some of it, I don't see, I don't want to be friends with the people that it may connect to. <laughs> so I remember a few years ago, I took my father to see Leonard oh, Cohen wow. in, in London, Ontario, because my father was a big Leonard Cohen fan. We never really listened to him at all growing mm -hmm. up, but apparently he was always a big Leonard Cohen fan and he never got to see him. So he was coming through and I said to my mom, Leonard Cohen is coming to London, Ontario. And my mom said, you should take your dad. I really have no interest in going, but he really wants to go. So I will buy the tickets. And so she bought tickets and my dad and I went and I'm a, I'm a fan, you know, I, I know it's not everyone's mm -hmm. taste, but I think he's brilliant yeah. and, and I, and I'm a fan. And I remember he was at the time, I think he was about 80 years wow. old. He was on stage for close to three and a half wow. hours with an intermission, but with an exceptional backup yeah. band like exceptional backup of which he showcased the whole entire night and i thought he sang brilliantly yes a lot of people say leonard cohen can't sing i disagree i think he sang brilliantly and i think as he's gotten older and has really fallen into the character of his mm -hmm. voice i think he's singing better than he ever had through his career because he's discovered who mm -hmm. he is and as a musician i I tend to hear the music before I hear the mm -hmm. lyrics. Most people tend to hear the lyrics. I was captivated by every word and every syllable that he did that night. And I was so profoundly moved by the experience because there was just something so genuinely kind, mm -hmm. respectful about him towards all the, all the people that were there in the audience. He's got a wicked sense of humor that I think sometimes people don't always realize mm -hmm. because he's always taken as being so dark and gloomy. And he did Hallelujah, which is probably one of the most overly recorded songs mm -hmm. in the world. It's also one of the most beautiful songs ever mm -hmm. written. And in my opinion, it was probably the greatest performance of that song I've ever wow. seen because I said I was captivated by every syllable. This is a guy that's performing, like I said, one of the most beautiful songs ever written, of which, of course, he wrote in the first place. And little inflections just brought out just so much joy. And then when you kind of got to certain sections that would usually be the vocal showcase for most people covering these, there was just a bit of an inflection. The whole band just came up and it just knocked everyone you know, on the floor because it was so genuinely beautiful. And to me, it's like, that's, that's what music mm -hmm. should be. It's, it should be about, you know, capturing that emotion. Mm -hmm. 
and and really kind of building that and i i saw him i think a couple of other occasions after that and he was equally mm. brilliant you know and of course you know unfortunately we we lost him but i don't think i ever would have really truly appreciated his genius and his brilliance as both an artist and a songwriter if i hadn't had a chance to see him play live now we also just recently lost another great Canadian legend, Mr. Gordon Lightfoot, mm -hmm. who I know you have had the absolute privilege to have had the chance to work with in a variety of situations over the last 20 years. And I think it's essential that we really take some time just to kind of reflect upon that. So can you share some of your experiences getting the opportunity to work with Gordon Lightfoot over the years? Yeah, so um, I started working here on the first anniversary of 9-11. So I started here on September 11th, 2002. And um, Bob, who you've met, and Bob's previous partner here, Paul, uh, they were right in smack dab in the middle of doing a record with Gord when he had a uh, near fatal stomach aneurysm, abdominal aneurysm that nearly ended his life. So obviously nearly ended work on this record. So I started in here and, you know, I was doing the job of an assistant engineer and um, they needed somebody to actually like really dig in and, and help out. So I learned the ropes pretty fast and I, I've been trying to remember, I'm sure I could go back in the calendars and find out the exact day that I met him for the first time, but it was pretty early on because he got out of the hospital and the one thing about him is that his mind was always racing with work so he's constantly working the wheels are always turning he's always writing planning touring you know working on music whether it's unreleased music or stuff that he recorded decades ago um so as soon as he got out of the hospital basically he was back in the studio so i i met him i'm gonna say it was probably late 2002 so not long after i started working here um, so my first role in, in the scheme of that particular project was, uh, keeping track of, of mixes. Um, they were mixing to tape at that time. So keeping meticulous notes and, and being able to reference them quickly. And, uh, he started to, to nickname me the, the dat police. So dat was like digital audio tape, um, which I thought was lovely and endearing, um, and a compliment because he's very finicky and very meticulous and, and I'm equally as so. So I would keep perfect notes and be able to reference back to things. Um, so we developed a really good working rapport. Uh, he had already done a record here prior to that album. Uh, I think it was around 1995 that he started working here at Grant. Um, so that album was released in about 04. And I, I did do some... Uh, co-mixing with with bob on that with gord after that record we had done some uh work for pbs he was hired to do a song i don't know if it ever ever got released for a spike lee documentary about about the oil spill um so he wrote a song about that he came in and recorded and at that time i i'd been a little more established in here so i was you know behind the behind the glass for him and um, running things. And as you know, like, he performed at Massey Hall every 18 months for three or four nights. And he hired us to record all of those for archival purposes or for later releases. So a lot of those recordings ended up on an album called All Live. Um, so recording those Massey Hall performances was a very interesting experience, just being in that iconic space, recording the iconic Gordon Lightfoot. Actually, he was hired to play the last gig there in 2018 before they shut down for their big reno. And so we did a rehearsal day, the last day of June in 2018. And then the big show was going to be on Canada Day that we were recording. So you know, we were all set up, sounds are ready, the show is about to begin. We're sort of just finishing up sound check. And I I uh went upstairs and just grabbed a couple of photos as he was leaving the stage from tuning his guitar. And I thought, could you be, could there be a more Canadian thing to do than on Canada Day than record like Canada's son in the iconic venue in the country? You know, it was just an amazing experience. So there was that, all of that stuff, all the Massey Hall shows, um, another album called Solo. 
which I, I recorded and actually played on. Um, but then he decided at the last minute to strip back all the overdubs that were laid down and just have it uh, just his guitar and vocal. Um, and Bob and I kind of fought with him tooth and nail on that decision because he had some really great overdubs and some great playing. But he said, no, I just want it to be just me. And I think Bruce Springsteen had just released an album very similar. And his concept was the fans deserve like just me on this one. And, it, it, and you know, in hindsight now, he was right. It's It's a beautiful moment in time. Um, a couple singles came out. One I think is one of his best songs ever written called Plans of My Own. Um, I did a lot of interviews last week about him and people always want to talk about the older material, like the, the song, the Gordon Lightfoot songbook, you know, the stuff that made him famous that he recorded mostly when he was a young man in his twenties. And in my opinion, some of the work that he has now in the last decade has a person who was in, you know, the last inning of his life with a life experience under his belt like we have no idea um some of this material he wrote was just poignant and beautiful and you know about departure and letting go and death and uh and i love it so some of it is on hard drives unreleased and i'm hoping that maybe whoever's going to make some of these decisions at some point decides to allow it to go out there uh, we're also right in the middle of, we spoke with him on the phone just a month ago about uh, another project we're right in the middle of with him. He recorded at Royal Albert Hall in London, England, just before COVID. And he's decided he wants to release that it's a two and a half hour show. And um, yeah, we're there. We've got it mixed. It's mastered. So the last reference we sent off to him, we don't even know if he had an opportunity to hear it at this point. So um yeah it's been quite quite the journey and I've I've gotten to know him well as a person and he's hired me to do an album with his daughter which was great I got to sit here and he was right next to me while she sat out on the floor and he gave her the the opportunity to experience some of the things that he's experienced in his life and and he allowed me to make some decisions and we made some decisions together and it was really great to see that father-daughter dynamic as well from him just allowing her to do her thing and he wasn't interjecting a whole lot and uh i really enjoyed that process and and i one of the things i i said on a public post about his death is that he took a genuine interest in who you were as a person and uh my family and he he got my dad some backstage passes way back in the day that that just blew my mind and he always referred to my mom and dad by name and sent a message when my dad passed away. He sent a message when my dog passed away. Like, so I, uh, you know, you just get to know someone very well sometimes when you're making records with them. And um, I'll never eat a bag of Miss, Chip Miss Vicky's chips again the same way without uh, thinking about Gord. So, yeah. As we're coming to a close here, you do a lot of mentoring for up and coming, you know, people that are interested in getting into the recording process. And you also work with a lot of up and coming musicians that are looking to get into studio work and kind of just expand their career options and really explore some of the, the opportunities that you've had whether it be the engineering recording aspect of things or the musician aspect of things, what are some of the pieces of advice that you could offer to them to really kind of, you know, help direct them in the right way or, or, or really give them a real true to life perspective as to what you consider to be important. From an engineering standpoint, um, I think one of the most important books ever written is the assistant engineer's handbook. Um, so what's happening right now is there's a lot of kids graduating from these audio colleges who are thinking that as soon as they get out and graduate, they're going to get a job at a recording studio. Number one, there aren't many left. Um, and number two, when they get their job as an assistant, they are automatically, I believe, for the most part in my experience here, feel like they're entitled to um, a much higher level position. So we have a lot of very opinionated interns. Um, we had a lot of very opinionated interns. Um, and my advice to any kid getting started is um, there's nothing that's beneath you. I've been doing this for 22 years and I still clean the toilets. I still clean the coffee mugs. We still have to shovel snow. I have to pick up the garbage. 
And you have to be able to do those things. And Bob Deutsch said to me on my first day, he said, if I can't trust you to clean a coffee mug correctly, why would I trust you around a half a million dollars worth of equipment? And that's absolutely true. The other thing that he said to me, and I realize I'm just requoting Bob at this point, he said that if I'm sitting, which I actually like to stand up when I work mostly, but if I'm sitting, my back should never be touching the chair. And I didn't quite understand what he meant at that moment. But in hindsight, it's like there is always something to be done in the recording environment. And as a person just getting started out, you need to be able to do all of those things and pretty much be invisible. So your ego is not going to get fed. So if you need that, this isn't the job for you. Maybe down in LA or, or New York, you might have a bit of a different experience. But here in Canada, for the most part, you're going to make coffee for a really, really long time. So you better make a damn good cup of coffee and be able to clean those mugs and do all the other things. Like, you know me, I love to work with pencils. So if I don't have sharp pencils, I'm going to start my day really angry. So it's getting to know your work environment and give me my sharp pencils if that's what I need. So learning what your people, what your colleagues need to actually have a creative start and uh, doing that. From a session musician perspective, um, you have what I would consider the, the biggest quality of show up. That's important. Show up, do your homework. So you will take the time to chart tunes and learn them and spend a little bit of time thinking about intent and influence and approach. And that goes a really long way. Um, you're not going to get hired as a session player to play with your favorite artist or famous bands, maybe ever. And that's not what it's about. So um, being able to step back from that too. And that goes for an engineering standpoint too. A lot of kids will think, oh, I'm going to be recording my favorite style of music in this studio. I'm like, well, probably not, actually. 90% of what you record is probably going to be music that you'll never want to hear again. That's just the nature of the business. So it's being able to kind of step back from those um, expectations, I guess, and uh, realize the opportunity to actually get to do something like this and make music is a blessing. It's just an, an absolute, those of us that get to do it are so fortunate. I realize that financially it's not easy, um, but you get to exercise parts of your brain uh, and your body that I don't think you get to do in many other uh, jobs, in many other careers, and the, and the opportunity for lifelong learning. I know that you've probably seen this, this little internet thing that was going around. I'm still going around. I'm sure there's a famous cellist. I believe he's 96 years old or something like this. I'm probably getting this completely wrong, Michael, but uh, somebody asked him if he still practices. And he says, I practice every day. And the person said, well, why? He says, well, I'm just starting to get it now. And I love that. It's like, here's a man who's probably played for 85 years but he's just starting to feel comfortable with his instrument. And I feel that way about this console. Like, so this is my instrument. I do play instruments, but this is, this is how I get to, you know, create is using this thing. So I still learn stuff on about this board every single day. And I've been sitting in this chair for more than two decades. And um, if someone has the wherewithal and the work ethic to, accept that and want to start out on that journey, then there's no stopping them really. But coming out of the gate, they got to be prepared to maybe do some stuff and listen to some stuff and play to play some stuff that they don't necessarily want to do or play. In closing here, this is actually going to be probably a really complicated question. Since you got into this industry, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned from all of your experiences? And what's the biggest joy you've gotten from all of your experiences. Mm, wow. The biggest lesson. Oh man, I really have to think about that. It's going to take me some time, Michael. <laughs> the biggest joy, uh, the biggest joy for me is let's go backwards to recording somebody who's never really done this before, or on the flip side, someone who I know is having a tough time mentally or just with some confidence. And when that person leaves the building, 
very proud of themselves or have had have had a very positive experience that's when I know that I've done my job and nothing brings me better satisfaction than that. And it really can be truly exhausting mentally because you have to be a sponge to all of their emotion and their baggage sometimes to allow them to have that outlet. And when I have people come in and listen back to their song through the speakers and just say, Oh my God, like, I can't, I can't believe that that's me, that, that I wrote that that's me that I'm hearing come back. I, I sleep better at night when I, when I've had days like that. Um, Biggest lesson. um, I think shutting up, shutting up is a really good lesson because generally speaking, you have to find a way to make your opinion known in a very diplomatic way. Um, A lot of people get offended these days by some, some weird stuff. Um, And oftentimes I will want to interject on how a song should go. And and if I'm not producing and there isn't a producer, sometimes I will find a way to, you know, get my little nuances in there and and help steer people and help bring them to a certain point. Uh, But if there is a producer and things aren't going the way that I would like them to, or as efficiently as I think that I could do them, um, learning how to shut up is a really good lesson. And that's hard for a lot of people to do, um, especially going back to someone just maybe coming out of school. It's really hard to shut up because right now we're a society teaching people that, you know, everybody's opinion matters and we all matter. And yes, we do. But there's certain situations in life where um, you have to just let it go. So. So in closing, I would just like to say that your impact on our industry and our community in terms of your knowledge, your experience, your encouragement, and your support has been profound. And looking back at the entire career, I think you should be exceptionally proud of all the work that you've done because it has impacted the lives of others in a way that I don't think sometimes we can ever truly show our appreciation for just in terms of how grateful we are. So I hope that you continue to find joy in your life of music and in terms of the things that you seek. And and I know that we will always celebrate your impact on our industry. So I wish you all the best. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Michael. That means a lot. Thank you. You've been listening to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. Please share and subscribe to get the word out and let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.